You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 2nd, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is the third part of a trilogy of shows about how to decarbonize grid power. The trilogy started with our discussion with Pete Fuller in episode 90 on how wholesale power markets can be reformed and restructured to help deliver clean electricity. Then we had Miles Farmer on in episode 97, who explained how state policies mandating renewables can help us decarbonize grid power, and how the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, and state authorities can work together to develop policies that are complementary. With those two somewhat opposite perspectives in place, I wanted to have a guest who could now help us bridge the gap between them and share with us some ideas about how market mechanisms and state policies can be knitted together to achieve our decarbonization objectives, especially given the new proposed reforms to the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, or PERPA, which has been one of the key mechanisms that force utilities to buy renewable power, but which has also been increasingly under fire and lacking enforcement, as we discussed with Ari Pesco in episode 43. So I was very fortunate to land an interview with today's guest, whose experience and philosophy gives him a unique perspective on the question. Travis Cavula is currently the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at NRG Energy, although at the time we recorded this interview, he was the Energy and Environmental Policy Director of the R Street Institute, a think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., Travis has a wide range of experience in utility regulation, including serving as a commissioner on Montana's Public Service Commission, as president of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, and as a member of the governing body of the Western Energy Imbalance Market, the real-time electricity marketplace started in 2014 using the California ISO's platform. He is a proud conservative and a champion of market-based procurement, but rather than simply standing on those principles, I have found that he has a thoughtful approach to regulatory questions and an open mind, and truly cares about the outcomes of regulation. Not only did he graciously agree to listen to the aforementioned episodes with Pete Fuller and Miles Farmer and offer some useful perspectives on both of their arguments, but by the end of this interview, he also introduced some pretty interesting and novel ideas about how to reform electricity markets to achieve decarbonization that I think our listeners will find thought-provoking at the very least. So it's a real privilege to have him on the show to share his perspectives on not only those questions, but also some other contemporary matters, such as the state of FERC's showdown with PJM, the politicization of FERC, the recent battle in Ohio over bailing out its nukes and coal plants, and other regulatory battles du jour. So power market geeks will find much to love in this walkfest. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll revisit the battle over Ohio's nuke bailout. We'll note a startling downgrade of the oil and gas sector by a major European investment research house. We'll take a look at another new report from Carbon Tracker taking aim at big oil. We'll take notice of the diminished weight of the oil and gas sector in the S&P 500 index. And we'll see how ERCOT fared in the summer heat with its famously thin reserve margin. 
But first, our conversation with Travis Cavula, recorded August 7th, 2019. We had a poor connection for a few minutes during the first part of the interview, so you'll hear a few garbled words at that point, but we thought it better to leave those sections in than cut them out. Our apologies for the technical difficulties. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Travis, to the Energy Transition Show. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? Good. So I had the pleasure of seeing you debate Carl Robigo at the Nehru conference a few months ago on the topic of whether or not we even need PURPA to support demand for renewables anymore. And after seeing that debate, I knew that I needed to get you on the Energy Transition Show to offer your perspective on the various pathways to decarbonizing grid power. So thank you for joining us. Well, it's a delight, and I especially love debates, although this is my second best preferred alternative method of communication, which is a moderated interview. I think a lot of a lot of truth can emerge when we question our own assumptions and when you put hard questions to people who have opinions. So I look forward to proceeding in candor. <laughs> well, I'll see what I can do to draw out the best from you. So just to get us started, I want to take a few minutes here and just set the stage for this conversation. I'm thinking of this as the third part in a trilogy of shows about what some call the markets versus mandates question, whether we should rely on markets to call forth more clean power or turn to mandates, such as state renewable portfolio standards, otherwise known as RPSs. First, we had Pete Fuller in episode 90, who shared with us his thoughts about how wholesale power markets can and must be reformed to help deliver clean energy and help us achieve our decarbonization objectives. Pete is very much a proponent of, of course, of relying on markets to select the best solutions. So we talked about things like how FERC Order 841, for example, might encourage more storage procurement and how state policies like zero emissions credits or ZECs can corrupt wholesale markets, distort price signals, and effectively make it harder for renewables to gain market share. Then on sort of the flip side, we had Miles Farmer in episode 97, who essentially took the opposite position. He pointed out quite correctly, I think, that the social objectives like decarbonization really are the proper domain of the states in our federalist republic, and that wholesale markets really can't be expected to do that job, nor can the federal wholesale market regulator, FERC, really be expected to advance that objective. So in his view, state policies like RPSs really are critically important tools as we seek to decarbonize grid power. And he thought that quote, markets versus mandates wasn't even really the right question because procuring renewables to meet RPSs can and does happen through market mechanisms, and that we should be trying to figure out how FERC and state authorities can develop policies that are complementary. And so that brings us to you. And I think it's fair to say you're also a staunch advocate of market-based procurement, but you graciously agreed to listen to both of those previous episodes and sort of play cleanup batter on this topic. So I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on this because I suspect you have some pretty clear ideas of your own on the question of markets versus mandates and on how we can use these various tools to achieve decarbonization. So let's start there. To begin with, why markets? Well, Chris, I think why markets? Because you want whatever variable you're hoping to solve for, you want it to be solved through the most economically efficient means possible. And that tends not to be through a monopoly mechanism. There are still parts of this country where regulated utilities enjoy not only a monopoly franchise over a set of customers who are captive to them, but they also, in essence, have the advantage of being able to choose their own resources to be built to serve those customers. 
And in a regulatory system which rewards those companies by paying them a standard percentage return on every dollar of capital invested, the incentive is pretty straightforward for them. Spend more to make more. And that's really why we set up wholesale electricity markets to begin with, to try to unleash the powers of competition that exist in pretty much every other sector of the economy onto the utility sector. And there's still a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of backtracking that has occurred uh, with respect to that model. And there's parts of the country that have never gone to that model in the first place. I do agree with Miles that there are certain gradations between having a regulatory command and control planned energy economy and a completely liberalized free market. So there are waypoints from one bookend to the other. But in general, I think we should try to error on the side of more competition, because only through that can you really police all of the perverse incentives that present themselves in utility regulation. And that's why they were created to begin with. I agree with Miles and Pete, for that matter, that oftentimes our markets do not internalize externalities like carbon emissions, but you can easily do that within the context of a market. It simply means adding a variable that you need to solve for in addition to trying to get otherwise the total lowest cost portfolio within certain reliability parameters. I mean, that's a little bit begging the question, isn't it? Because the assumption is there that there are carbon emissions that need to be priced. So what if there aren't? Like, why not just reach directly for the carbon-free sources of power? Because I think it often leads to people selecting the ones that are more costly relative to alternatives. If left to the hands of state policymakers, you'll quickly see parochialism take over. I mean, a good example really are the state renewable portfolio standards that include all sorts of carve-outs about what qualifies as a quote-unquote renewable product. These are not state laws that prioritize the least cost sources of carbon emissions wherever they may come from. These are state laws that are really about allocating rents to particular preferred parties. Okay, that's fair. And we're going to definitely delve into that point here. So in your view, how are markets well suited to helping us achieve the decarbonization objective? What specific policies will encourage the deployment of clean power in a way that's market-friendly? And I have a feeling your answer is going to have something to do with pricing carbon. It does. I mean, that's <laughs> the simplest way to do this. And just to back up a moment, it perplexes me to no end that if the problem is too much of something, that you wouldn't simply put a price on having that thing to cause there to be less of it. And every other policy that wants to do something about climate change really has to answer for its inefficiencies relative to that much more straightforward approach. That straightforward approach also happens to be almost completely compatible with the way the electricity markets work today, where you have clearing prices set by the highest cost unit necessary to meet consumer demand at a particular location. If you just factor in a price per ton of carbon multiplied by a particular power plant's intensity of carbon emissions, you reorder the dispatch stack of the units that would otherwise be operating in the system, you get a new clearing price, 
and a new order of generation with some of the more carbon intensive units pushed out of the generation stack, as we call it in the business. I just marvel at the fact that the solution in some sense is right in front of us. And when people say that a carbon price is politically infeasible and that we have to do something else because of that infeasibility, what they're really tacitly conceding is that their solution is more costly or less effective or more likely both. And politically, what they're saying is that rent-seeking interests need to be let in the doors so that their gimmies can be added to this public policy that other people will be paying for. It's essentially a concession that the skids need to be greased and that they are not making carbon reductions at an affordable price the paramount objective of their policy. Okay, but when I say it's politically infeasible, and I do say that, I simply mean that we've seen numerous attempts to implement a carbon tax over the past 15 years or so, and they've failed. So it is demonstrably politically infeasible, or QED, right? I mean, you can conceive of it in this way, that public clamor to do something about climate change is growing, and you can either reach over to the release valve of the state of Delaware's renewable portfolio standard to let a little bit of steam out of that political cauldron, or you can let the cauldron come to a boil and maybe then you'll finally have a meaningful carbon price, one that's actually durable potentially in the face of the political changes from one party to another we're constantly experiencing. I will say that there are state examples where they've tried to put a carbon price in place. Some of those are more successful than others. They all suffer from the infirmity, whether you're talking about California or the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative of the Northeast, of having other policies in place that cause the actual price on carbon not to bind or not to be the primary influential policy that actually moves the needle. But we're seeing at least a willingness of certain states to tolerate this approach. And I continue to think that for a long-term solution, the best answer is to try to get Republicans and Democrats aligned at the federal level. Now, that will require some kind of political bargaining. I mean, obviously, the Republican Party is not going to accept a carbon price without a fair measure of kicking and screaming. But for example, I've always thought a good deal to put on the table is the repeal of the EPA's Clean Air Act to regulate carbon emissions in exchange for a price on carbon. That gives you a regulation that Republicans are always harping on about, a regulation which, when exercised, doesn't make a lot of sense to regulate carbon emissions through the Clean Air Act for any number of reasons, but it gives a win on public policy for actually doing something meaningful about climate, and most importantly, for having a consistent framework of regulation that might outlast a particular administration. And that's really kind of what we're missing at the federal level at this point. All right. Well, I take your point about carbon pricing. I think there's more that we could talk about there, but I don't want to get too hung up on it for the purposes of this conversation. So let's move on and talk about mandates like state policies. Like, What would you say is their role in advancing decarbonization? Well, there is a market failure here in terms of pricing the emissions that we've been talking about. And the chief advantage of a mandate is making absolute sure that the thing that you're mandating less of or more of will actually be achieved in a lower or greater quantity. And we have used mandates in the past in the electric sector. 
rural and poor people couldn't afford what electricity actually cost, and government intervened through a series of mandates and subsidies to try to get there. Now then, there were natural cost controls. The goal of low cost went hand in hand with access, because if you caused electricity uh, and the network that delivered it to cost too much more through add-ons, you would defeat your own goal of access. So the discussion of environmental attributes is a little bit different, and it's a harder variable to solve for than simply access to electricity, because, at least in my view, environmental regulation is classically about constraining the productivity of firms, while economic regulation of monopolies is actually about inducing more capital and labor productivity, and about growing the network on some fundamental level. So that means we need some sort of policy tool for carbon reductions that's going to be, in a sense, at a fundamental cross-purpose with the classic cost-minimizing, production-maximizing objectives of the rare, well-done utility regulation, or certainly of liberalized markets. So I'm not dismissing entirely this idea that Miles and others present, that there needs to be some government intervention. It's really just about how can we best align it with the system we have today, or does the system need to be blown up in the name of pursuing these other governmental and social objectives? Yeah, you know, I think you're edging on to the really key point here, which is that if we want to either use markets or state policies to advance decarbonization as a social priority, we are departing from the conventional utility regulation tradition of always selecting for least cost resources or always making sure that policies are well aligned with all those conventional sort of objectives. And if you are trapped within that mindset, then carbon pricing is probably sort of the only solution to this. And I guess what I'm questioning is, can we depart from that tradition somewhat without, as you say, completely blowing up that body of tradition? I mean, after all, isn't it true that, as Miles pointed out, the policy tools to achieve social aims like decarbonization really are the rightful domain of the states, and that such an objective isn't even part of FERC's remit, which is mainly about ensuring fair play between the states and ensuring that our wholesale markets function properly. So within the state objectives and recognizing that it has a variety of social objectives and that selecting the lowest cost resource isn't the only such objective and that maybe because we are in a world now that's heating up and potentially putting everyone and everything in peril, that being so attached to a tradition of regulation maybe isn't the most important thing here. Well, I guess I would say that while it is legally true that state governments in the federalism regime that we have in the United States have traditionally possessed the health and police powers of a Republican form of government, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that they would individually exercise them in relation to something that is an atmospheric pollutant. It's not like they're trying to regulate the fact that there is a public sanitation problem in a major city. It's not even like they're trying to regulate regional haze or mercury emissions, which are slightly more regional in nature and less local. That's true. They're trying to regulate something that a ton of which emitted in Bangalore is a ton emitted in New York City. 
And so it's hard enough to solve this problem, as we've seen with the Paris climate talks and elsewhere, on even a national level, much less with the mayor of San Francisco declaring that they have a quote-unquote climate policy. So even though I agree with Miles, I don't know that that legal tradition conceives properly of the challenge that we really face. That is a key point. I think that's a really key point. And I think that point has not been made and not debated the way that it ought to be here. You're absolutely right. A ton of CO2 emitted in Maryland doesn't stay in Maryland. But because there is no federal mechanism for regulating that, and because it's not part of FERC's remit at the wholesale market level to regulate that or to control it or really nudge it in any way, I mean, what's left? We're sort of in a no man's land here, right? Well, what is and is not part of FERC's remit, I think, is up for debate somewhat. And you've seen, for example, Commissioner Rich Glick and his advisor, Matt Christensen, wrote a law review article that suggested that FERC did potentially have the power to price carbon dioxide emissions within the wholesale markets pursuant to the Federal Power Act. And you've also seen other regulatory agencies act boldly when federalizing the regulation of certain markets promotes competition, promotes liberalization, and when the questions they're trying to regulate to are really matters of national concern. One good example probably, and it's sort of a sister issue of electricity regulation, is the regulation of telecommunications. It used to be the case that individually each state's utility commission regulated the old AT&T, Ma Bell. And the law of the land that might exist in Montana was different than in Massachusetts. And I think using the traditional legal paradigm of federalism, one could assert, for example, that each state citing to a concern about the safety of its citizens should be allowed to promulgate regulations about what kind of content was permissible or facilitating criminal activity, et cetera, online, such that Utah, with its particular concerns, might have different standards than, say, California. But happily, we instead had the Federal Communications Commission and, importantly, Congress itself, in an update to the Communications Act, instead say, no, that wouldn't make any sense. We want a single federal regulator, the FCC, to be in place to evaluate and monitor these communications networks. And that really, that decision to federalize it is what led to the vibrant, competitive, liberalized, and open internet that we now enjoy. So imagine if you had a network like electricity, where just like states are doing with a global pollutant, if states were trying to somehow mitigate the harms that are presented by the modern culture online, it would be completely unworkable. Yeah. Yeah. The only way that the denizens of Salt Lake City are not going to see the output from San Fernando Valley is if they really just decide not to click on that link. Right. (laughs) But I think that's a great analogy. So let's talk about the states a little more. I mean, obviously, I agree with Miles here. State policies can simply and directly mandate more clean and renewable power procurement without trying to construct some long and convoluted and indirect way of getting markets to procure it. So what's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with just using those state tools? 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As we briefly mentioned in the interview, if the residents of New York, Illinois, and New Jersey thought the efforts to bail out their economically failing nuclear plants over the past couple of years were complicated and confusing, Ohio just said, hold my beer. It began in a fairly typical way. Bankrupt utility First Energy, a name that is by now synonymous with economically failing nuclear plants, spent more than $30 million over the past two years on lobbying and elections in Ohio and Pennsylvania to obtain bailouts for its nuclear plants. Their effort has not yet paid off in Pennsylvania, but it did in Ohio, where a law known as HB6 passed in July, which will give the company's subsidiary, First Energy Solutions, a $1.1 billion subsidy. The company will be paid $150 million a year for seven years for two of its nuclear plants in Ohio. Additionally, Ohio Valley Electric Corp., which owns two large coal-fired power plants in the state that are also losing money, will receive $50 million a year in subsidies. The law also eliminates the state's renewable energy mandates in 2026, ends programs to improve energy efficiency, and provides about $20 million a year for a half-dozen utility-scale solar plants that had already been approved by state regulators. When asked about reports of the involvement of dark money groups in pushing the bailout, Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown said, quote, of course there is. I mean, these things happen because these moneyed interests control the state legislature. There's no question about it. And that's when things started to get weird. A pro-consumer group opposed to HB6, known as Ohioans Against Corporate Bailouts, is aiming to place a referendum on the ballot in November 2020 to kill the new law. To address that threat, a dark money organization calling itself Ohioans for Energy Security funded more than $9 million in TV commercials, including one that insinuates that China is attempting to infiltrate and control the power grid of Ohio through loans by a Chinese government bank to companies that operate natural gas-fired power plants. 
companies who, not surprisingly, also oppose the HB6 bailout of competing coal and nuclear plants. Here's a taste of that delightful little morsel. They took our manufacturing jobs. They shuttered our factories. Now they're coming for our energy jobs. The Chinese government is quietly invading our American electric grid, intertwining themselves financially in our energy infrastructure. Now, a special interest group boosting Chinese financial interests is targeting Ohio's energy. But as the scant information posted on the website of Ohioans for Energy Security notes, those three natural gas plants were refinanced by a consortium of banks from the U.S., the U.K., France, and Switzerland, as well as China. In other words, the China angle is pure propaganda, a totally irrelevant canard designed to distract voters from the fact that they have just been forced to keep economically failing coal and nuclear plants afloat while gutting public investment in energy efficiency and new renewables, and implying that if they don't like the subsidy, they must like communists. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Log into our website and see the links in the show notes for many more dirty details, such as the connections between the legislators who supported the bailout and the Trump administration. Item two, Redburn, the largest independent equities broker in Europe and a respected investment advisory firm, issued a report in September titled Oil Majors Lost in Transition, which argues that the oil and gas industry faces an existential risk, resting complacently on long-term forecasts for oil demand that are as much as 30% too high. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>